You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Questions and Answers. Hello my radio friends, I'm glad you've joined me for another program in the series Give Me the Bible. This week I shall endeavour to answer some Bible questions to help you. And the first question is, how come Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man if he was the Son of God? Jesus, like many of us, had other names, all referring to him. You probably have the same. In my case, I'm known as Len, Dad, Opa, Uncle, Papa, Mr., Sir, Mate, My Dear One, and so on. There are two main reasons why Jesus referred himself to himself as Son of Man. The first is that by this name he identifies himself with people, that is, human beings. When he spoke about himself, he reminded people by using this name that he was fully human. The name Son of Man is probably more of a title, and it has an air of universality and dignity to it. Generally, other people referred to Jesus as the Son of God. An example of this is found in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. At the moment Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, and there was an earthquake. The verse says, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and all that had happened... They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely this was the Son of God. Another reason why Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man was to avoid stirring up animosity with the Jewish leaders. Just before his death, Jesus was arrested by the Jews and they went all out to condemn him. In John 26, verses 63 and 64, is recorded an exchange between the high priest and Jesus at the kangaroo court trial that was being conducted at night. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say. Jesus replied. Jesus never rebuffed those who called him God, and he never rebuffed anyone who worshipped him. One classical statement regarding this is from John 20, verse 28, where Thomas, often known as the doubting disciple, exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. 
and as such, he is our mediator. Now we're going to question two, which says, There are religious writings other than the Bible. Why should we take notice of the Bible instead of these others? And that's a great question. Yes, it's true that there are some alternative writings that are quite interesting. I've read some of these, like the Book of Mormon, the Quran, some of the Watchtower publications, and various others. In fact, the same applied to the Bible. There are certain books that were not included in the Bible. They've been included in what's known as the Jerusalem Bible and some other compilations, but were never ever included in the Standard Bible. Why was that, you might be asking? The reason is that those other books, like the Book of Maccabees, were not considered inspired by God. They were simply historical records and were not uplifting and helpful. There has been some interest in certain documents like the Gospel of Judas. Some, like this one, have been shown to be complete fakes, written by someone else yet purported to having been written by Judas Iscariot, and so on. Personally, I can't conceive there being a real gospel written by Judas, as he was a traitor and committed suicide. Near the end of his life, he recognised that he had been wrong about Jesus. The Bible describes itself in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, where it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Bible has authority and a depth that other books do not aspire to. My advice to you is that you read the Bible and anything else that supports what the Bible says, but avoid anything that detracts from the Bible. After all, the Bible is the Word of God. It contains information that, if believed and followed, is the recipe for eternal life. Now, question three. It says, people talk about the virgin birth. Surely a virgin birth is an impossibility. Yes, I'm aware that there are some very vocal voices that rubbish what the Bible says about Mary while still a virgin becoming pregnant and giving birth to Jesus. The Bible records what happened to Mary this way. You can find it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 30 through to 35. It says this, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. 
You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You may know of other miraculous births recorded in the Bible. Hannah was unable to have children and pleaded with the Lord, and later became pregnant. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was ninety years old, and her menopause was well and truly over. Yet she bore a son, Isaac. Elizabeth was old and gave birth to John the Baptist. The birth of Jesus was a miracle birth. Following the verse I read to you is a statement we should not overlook. It says this, Nothing is impossible with God. It's true you can't explain the birth of Jesus in natural, human, physical terms. Mary's conception and Jesus' birth was supernatural. Anyone who does not understand God's power will, of course, be sceptical. But if you realise that God is beyond human power and intelligence, well then there's no problem. There's another thing that is interesting about Jesus' birth. His mother, Mary, was a virtuous woman. She had not had any sexual relations with her intended husband or anyone else. She was fully human. If you like, although Mary was human, the conception came about because of the intervention of God. So Jesus' parentage was both human and divine. Jesus came down from heaven and is the go-between between God and man. And if that hadn't been so, what hope would there be for any of us? The answer is none. None whatsoever. Question four. If when God created the world, he made it very good, why are there pests and predators? Well, this is another great question. When God created the earth, it was very good. There was peace and harmony, and it stayed this way until the enemy of all that is good, Satan, came and tempted Eve and Adam to go against God's explicit warning. At that point, they sinned. You can read what happened straight after they sinned in Genesis 3. To Adam, Eve and the serpent, God spoke separately, and there were curses that were put on them or affected them. 
Genesis 3 verses 17 and 18 tells us this. To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. When you think about it, because of sin, God caused a mini-creation to show mankind the result of rebellion. All was not as before. Things changed. The environment was altered. Pests, weeds and prickly plants came. The Bible doesn't say anything that changed in the animal kingdom, that is, the fauna. But it is reasonable to extrapolate that changes occurred with the creatures of the earth as well. Animals, insects, birds and fish became predatory and carnivorous. But some might be thinking, what about lions? They have teeth that are suitable for ripping and tearing, showing that they were carnivorous and most likely would have been back then. Of course, like the evolutionary theory, that is an assumption. Lions and other such predators survive on a carnivorous diet, but they can also survive on a herbivorous diet. The Bible does not give any clear direct answers to this question, and there's plenty of room for speculation about predators and pests. But one clue provides for a reasonable answer to the question. It's found in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 25. Isaiah was given information about what it will be like when God has dealt out final punishment to the wicked and makes all things new probably very much like he made it when the world was originally created. The text says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. So here is a picture of harmony. Wolves lie down with lambs and don't even bother to kill and eat them. Lions and other animals like them will eat grass. And then we're told that nothing will harm or destroy. That final bit means there will be no killing, so animals will not consume other animals. Like at creation, peace and harmony will exist again. I just want to share with you another idea. It is purely speculative. Some people have reasoned this way. They say that Satan was a mighty, mighty angel and he created some of the unpleasant, bizarre, 
carnivores and pests. They based their reasoning on what happened when God commissioned Moses and Aaron to request the Egyptian pharaoh to release the Hebrew slaves. You can read about what happened in Exodus chapter 7 and from verse 10. The Bible records, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. We can be fairly certain that when God created the earth, he did not create pests and predators. It is far more likely that they came about because of the curse God placed on the earth, that they were the product of the or that they were the product of the corrupt and evil angel who came into the world, Satan.
dearly Loved thee more dearly Followed thee more nearly Day by day by day by day Day by day by day by day And now we've come to the last question for today. Question five says, Why should I believe the Bible when it says we should love one another and in another place it tells us to hate? Isn't this a blatant contradiction? Well, let me read the relevant texts for you. First one is from John 13:35 which says by this shall all men know you are my disciples that you love one another. And then we have Luke 14:26. Jesus is speaking and he says if any man comes to me and hates not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters Yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Used in modern context, hate is one of those extreme words. But it does not always mean to have an intense dislike for. It also has a softer meaning, such as in, I hate having to comb my hair. In the context that Jesus was using, hate means, and note this, to take second place. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, where he intended the softer meaning. It has to be this way, otherwise the Bible critics would be right. Now, let's illustrate that. Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31 is about Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah. The Bible says, And Jacob went in also unto Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. If Jacob hated Leah, if we understand hate, Why did he have sexual intercourse with her and procreate children with her? Why, for that matter, did Jacob keep Leah in his household? The key to understanding this is found in the first half of the text, where it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, come back to what Jesus said. Jesus said that unless you give me first place in your life, you're not worthy of me. Here is the same text, that's Luke 14:26, from a paraphrased version of the Bible, the clear word. It says, if any of you want to follow me, but you care more about your father and mother, your wife and children, or your brothers and sisters, you cannot be my disciple. Put simply, Jesus said, If you are prepared to put the interests of your relatives over my interests, it is impossible for you to be my disciple. And that, 
my dear radio friends, is a critical issue. It applies to you as well. If you are holding back on making a firm decision to become a Christian and follow Jesus, because a family member doesn't want you to do that, then you are placing their interests above those of the Lord. God must come first. And on that note, we're going to stop today. Yes, God must come first in your life and mine. Anything less than that is unacceptable. My dear listeners, make God first and last and best in everything. Until next time, I wish you much blessing and joy and peace.